Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canaligan. Welcome to Before the Lights Podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Today, he has 26 years in law enforcement in New Jersey and 20 undercover. He was an FBI undercover task force officer and was known as Giovanni Gatto. He spent life in the dangerous mafia world and is the author of Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Life Sopranos. He was part of Operation Charlie Horse and Operation Family and was involved in murder for hire, international drug trafficking. He used four different aliases, dealt with biker gangs, drug cartels, domestic and international terrorist groups. Please welcome to the show, Giovanni Rocco. Giovanni, how are you, sir? Hey, Tommy, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? Thanks for the intro. You are welcome. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Before we get going, today's show is brought to you by Aroma Retail, Scent Your Space. If you don't believe me and all the critics out there talking about Aroma Retail, search Aroma Retail Reviews and see it for your own two eyes. They're located in the heart of Las Vegas, the scenting capital of the world. All their products are assembled here in Vegas and shipped within 24 hours, and they ship all over the world. Go to the show notes or to the website, beforethelightspod.com. Go to the sponsor page and click on the Aroma Retail logo to get a special link and then use the code LIGHTS10, that's LIGHTS10, to get 10% off of your entire order. With over 80 fragrances, you can get your house to smell like the Mirage Casino's Tropical Cocoa Mango. Mine smells like Mandalay Bay's Coconut Spice. They have a mood collection that includes confidence, happiness, meditation, and maybe you want your kitchen to smell like a pastry shop, Aroma Retail can take care of all of that. Giovanni, born and raised in New Jersey, as a child, I understand you remember fruit trucks coming by with an Italian guy selling like peaches and apples. Talk about that. I do. It's crazy, right? I feel like I'm an old timer, but I'm not that old, but that's how Bayonne was growing up. I remember playing in the street. You know, you could play in the middle of the street like stick ball and the truck would come by and you knew and you heard the guy yelling, peaches, peaches, fresh fruit. You knew you had to run home. The game stopped. Everybody <laughs> ran home to go run home to see what your mom wanted, you know, and then she sent you back out. And it really was. It was truly. And years later, I saw it on a Bronx town. I was like, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's the same damn thing. Right. And uh, that's how it was. Bayonne was like that. It's very Brooklyn-esque. And uh, everybody looked out for each other in the neighborhood. Everybody, you know, it was, it took a village and it did with me. It took more than a village to raise me because I was a problem child. <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to jump into that here just uh, briefly was also that area. Then like you see on the movies where at night, all the kids are hanging outside on the steps and people are playing and you know, the fire hydrants are going, was it, was it just like that? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't so much, not so much the fire hydrants because you know, we get yelled at for that, but, um, cause you know, we always had somewhere to go to city pools were open, but very much like that. My front porch and my family, we all sat outside at night on a hot summer night. And you know, it, that's how it was. You grew up that way. And if you weren't sitting on somebody's porch, you're sitting on somebody, you know, your own porch. So, uh, you know, that's very much the, the whip it, the rides on top of the, the fruit trucks used to come around. We used to have the trucks with the rides, with the carnival rides on the back of the truck. Mm. And I don't know how any kids didn't get, get killed on those things, but <laughs> The rides used to be, people used to, you know, 25 cents for a ride, 50 cents for a ride, and that's how it was in the neighborhood. So, When did you then go from Bayonne to Hoboken? 
Uh, I bounced around. I didn't live in Hoboken. I had family all throughout Hudson County, Jersey City, Hoboken area. So it was nothing. You really didn't leave Bayonne for too much. Uh, you know, Christmas shopping was done on Broadway. You didn't leave for anything. You didn't have a reason to leave the, the city limits of Bayonne. Everything was done self-sustaining that city. The docks were open back then. The mob ran the docks. Everything was run by them, you know, on top of the military bases. Uh, all the trucking and stuff went through there. Um, so we bounced around at the Hoboken for dinner and to visit family and friends and stuff like that. So it, it was, uh, they were all the same. They mirrored each other, those cities. Your father was a Vietnam vet and a cop in, in Hudson County there. You mentioned that you were a problem child. What was your relationship like as a child with your parents? Uh, my parents were good to me, and they still are. Um, I'm blessed to have the parents I have. It's just that my dad, he, he raised my, like I described in a book, Tommy, he raised my brother and myself to be men. He, ma- he raised us hard. He expected us to, to protect ourselves and protect each other. That was the way of the world back then, and it still is today. I raised my kids the same way. Uh, he raised us with a fear no man attitude, and that's instilled in us since since we were little kids. And, um, you know, they provided. We we went without a lot of stuff when we were younger. They worked hard to give us what they have. And uh, my mom went to work as soon as she could and leave us at home by ourselves. And she worked hard to have a, a life to provide for us. And, and they did. And at times, you know, I was the, I was the problem kid. So, you know, when I was left to my own demise, I would always get in trouble. I'd cut out of school. I'd get in trouble. I'd get suspended. I'd get sent home by the nuns. I, You know, my mother tried to put us in the Catholic school and I'd get sent home with the big envelope pinned to my tie, you know, probably three times a week. And then I tried to take the note, throw it in the trash. And then my sister used to have to bring it home. So it was a constant. And I draw my mother and father up a wall. And, uh, you know, my father was he was tough with us. He raised us hard and he was he was hands on with us at times. Um, but I guess he was preparing me for the world ahead. People, I want you to get your hands on the book. I want you to go to the show notes and get Giovanni's ring. My life inside the real life Sopranos. We're going to go over some of what's in the book and a lot of what the the meat is of the book. Before we get into that, Giovanni, from reading the book, I found this one. It was, it's kind of comical as a kid. Did you go down and, and take a car from the local mechanical garage and, and go for joy rides? Yeah. We drove them over to Staten Island. <laughs> we blow the toll. We go to Staten Island mall. You know, it was, uh, it was crazy. You know, it was this little shop and it was a neighborhood shop. Everybody knew you left the keys above the visor and that's how the neighborhood was trusted that way. You left your keys for an oil change or a tune up, whatever it was. And we knew, so we were careful. We took a car, went for a joy ride over to Staten Island We'd hit the mall and we'd come back, you know, blow the toll. But I was always smart enough to not be the driver. I was always the front seat passenger. <laughs> Never sit in the back seat because you get caught. So uh, I, I got out, you know, I bailed fast. And, you know, if we got pulled over, we'd run. Um, but we'd always return the car back in case, God forbid, it was the wrong guy, right? What if it was a connected guy or a car? You don't want to be either or. Right. So you were safe with the cars when you brought them back. School wasn't good for you either. Can you tell the story how a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue Kind of helped you get through school. Yeah, that's not a that's not a uh, shining moment in my childhood, Tommy. My uh, I just sucked at school. I was terrible at it. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, I found it difficult. I was a smart kid. I just didn't want to apply myself. I just wanted to be distracted with other things. So by sixth grade, I was left back. I drove my parents crazy with that. Um, and then again, once I hit a high school, it was on. I hung out with all the wrong kids. I was getting suspended. Uh, you know, I, I almost got um, evicted from the school altogether, you know, exiled from it. And um, 
I came home one day and I explained to my mother, listen, my history teacher who you went to high school with mom and dad, my dad played football with this guy. Listen, this is, he came to me today and he made me an offer and I can't, couldn't refuse it, you know, <laughs> to use those words. And he he called me and my best friend, Patton. And he said, you two morons, you know, your biggest thorn to my side, uh, but this is how it's going to be. And he laid it out. He says, you're not graduating. You're not going to walk on stage unless you do this for me. I got to laid it all out. I got a tiki little, little tiki bar in my shore house down at the Jersey shore. I like to enjoy my summers. And because of jerks like you, my bar is always stocked. And he said, here's how it's going to go. You're going to give me a bottle of Johnny Walker blue and you're going to give me a bottle of Johnny Walker black and you're going to gift wrap it. I'm going to be out of my in fourth period. I'm not going to be in this room. The door is going to be open. You're going to come in. You're going to put it in the bottom drawer of my desk. And if it's there, you'll, you'll walk the stage. So I went home and I, by that time in my life, you know, my, my father probably wanted to wring this guy's neck, but he wanted to wring my neck even more. And uh, my mother just, you know, just to get me out of high school was like, all right, I'll do it, you know. So she got the bottle and wasn't my shining moment, but it got me through. <laughs> 12 years old, you saw your father take down a wanted man on the way home from a movie. Giovanni, how did this inspire you to maybe get into law enforcement? Um, that was it. I mean, before that, I saw the dark side of, of cops. I saw them interact with each other, always getting drunk and beating each other up in my house or at an event someplace. So I kind of shied away from all of that. Um, but then coming home from the Raiders of the Lost Ark, I was leaving. We were driving along Jersey City Highway and and uh, on the side of the road is a guy's, hit, guy's hitchhiking. And he wound up being a convicted felon who was wanted for multiple armed robberies. And my father recognized him on the side of the road and decided to pull over a cruiser and tell the cop who he was. And, you know, he said, all right, I'm going to jump out and collar this guy up real quick. And uh, that was it. You know, I watched him do that. From the back of a 76 Impala, I watched through the back window and I watched him chase this guy. He, he The guy tried to run, but I think uh, back then it was a little different. You know, I think they drew their guns on him, took the guy down. He went without a fight. And uh, that was it. You know, I went to the precinct. We sat outside the precinct in the Chevy while he processed the guy real quick and came out. And uh, that was it. That was the moment I knew. I was always a good kid inside. Playing cops and robbers, I was always a good guy. I was always a cop. You know, I was never wanted to be the bad guy. I never wanted to emulate those guys. But that's when I knew, man, this is that's where my calling was. From everything that, you know, we're talking about so far and how you were a problem child and some of the things you did. Can you explain then was street education versus book education for you? Absolutely. That's why I named the chapter in the book, you know, the University of Bayonne. Um Bayonne University provided me the education I needed to survive in general, anywhere in this world. What I learned in the streets and how I learned to read people was tremendous. Um, you know, from any walks of life or any racial divide, no matter what it was, I had to navigate it as a kid. My parents were both born and raised in low-income housing and uh, what we call the projects in the city. And uh, they got out of there real quick, as quick as they could. And they raised us in, in a small apartment in what would be like a row house type place. And um, my grandmother still lived in the projects. A lot of my family still lived in that low-income housing. So I would visit them there. So in order to go back there, I would have to live amongst those folks, you know, and they were low-income people and they lived by a certain code. And then I'd go back to my neighborhood, which is mostly Italian, German, Irish. And I'd have to live amongst what was the mafia code or the street code there in that neighborhood. So I had the best of both worlds. So, uh, I learned effective communication and rapport building at a very young age, which was all applicable to my career later on. One of the aliases you used that we mentioned in the intro was Giovanni Gatto. 
How is Giovanni Gatto different from Giovanni Rocco as a child? Well, the way I sum it up, Tommy, is that they're both inside of me, but I chose not to be Giovanni Gatto. When I, when I hit that age of about 17 or 18, I realized I didn't want to go to prison. I didn't want to go to where some of my friends were going. And I, I'd spent the money to, for that bottle of liquor to bribe my way out of school that I took a turn for the better. And I decided which path, path I was going to take. And that was the way of Giovanni Rocco. But Giovanni Gatto, if I went the other way, that's who I would have been. I would have I made a damn good criminal. I always bust everybody's cops in law enforcement. You guys are lucky. You're lucky I picked this side because I would have gave you a run for your money. You were a Hudson County patrolman. You screwed up by riding your Harley to work one day that led to an undercover job. If you would speak about that to my listeners. Sure. Um, well, by then I promised my chief of police when he offered me the job, he called me up and gave me the offer. And I kind of nonchalantly, yeah, sure, I'll take the job. Oh, wait a minute. I'm making an 11 spot for you. I'm hiring 10 guys. I'm making an 11 spot for you. What do you mean, yeah, you're going to take this job? Yeah, you'll think about it. Sounds good. You better be more convincing than that. So that's how that conversation went. And I said, yeah, I would love the job. I would love to give it a shot. You know me since I'm a little kid. I could. I feel I could do it. And I gave him my word. And he, he actually made me promise that day, well, look, I know you and I know the things you used to be involved in. And I wasn't a bad criminal. It's just the people you used to hang around with. You can't do that if I give you this job. So I gave him my word. Everything would change. And about nine months into the job, I must have got comfortable and thought it was a good idea to ride my uncle's 77 chopper that he loaned me at the day that day. It's a good idea to ride this illegally, not street legal at all, Harley Davidson into my precinct and, and parking under the building. And my chief of police came in and saw me parking. At first, he thought it was some some animal just parking in his police garage that he was just going to rip apart. And then uh then he realized it was me because you can't miss it. I had my my patrolman uniform pants on, my shiny shoes. I had a white T-shirt on, a leather vest, and my nine millimeter shoved into my pants. <laughs> so I looked like a half an ass. And uh, he freaked out. And when he got closer to me, he realized it was me. He's, you got to be kidding me. And screamed at me and screamed. And then he called me in about three weeks later, I guess just trying to shake my tree and asked me, I promised to get rid of the bike. And he says, you know, did you get rid of that bike? And I said, right, listen, you know, I haven't I haven't driven in the street. I gave you my word. I wouldn't. And he played the game a little bit. He says, so after I asked you and you gave me your word and he, he made me sweat a little bit. And then eventually he says, look, I want to give you the chance to do some undercover work. Would you be interested? And again, like a jerk. I go, yeah, sure. I'll give it a shit. Of course I can do that. You know, buy drugs and guns. Yeah, no problem at all. And then again, the brakes. don't get too cocky. You know, just let's see where this goes. And he gave me a chance to do some little things, small things in the beginning. And they, then that led into a narcotics career. And I worked narcotics for a long time. And then uh, I just worked my way up doing small things. I would do anything from massage parlors to, you know, pedophiles, bathroom dwellers, guys like that in the streets at the time. And then I worked my way into narcotics and, uh, you know, it just took a life of its own. I've done some, a few number of interviews with former FBI guys and a former couple guys that have been involved into the organized crime area. And my listeners that may be new to this, I think there's still a perception out there that the mob is about killing people when actually Giovanni, you can probably relate to this more than anybody. The mob is all about money. Correct. It's all about money. It's, it's driven by greed as any underworld organization, anything is the underworld is driven by money and greed. Did you have an FBI role-playing scenario before you got into working with organized crime? 
I did. Um, well, if you speak into the chapter that I wrote in a book about the training that I had from the FBI, correct? Uh, I did. I was given the, I was given a chance to go to the FBI training uh, undercover school, which was a, a complete honor. And when I made it to that point in my career, uh, I was broken by that point. I was doing years and years, probably more than a decade of undercover work on my own, self-taught, mm. trained, and stuff I learned from the streets of Bayonne and, and throughout New York and New Jersey stupidly, you know, getting myself almost in jams a bunch of different times, uh, probably come close to losing my life a handful of times doing, doing things my way. So when the time came and they offered me this training, um, some of the bureau personnel down at headquarters were like, this guy's too broken. He's too far gone. He, he can't do this kind of work. You can't train him. Uh, and I begged for the spot because my, my thing was, well, give me the chance because if I want to teach a young guy how to do this job years from now, I don't want to be responsible for somebody losing their life because I taught them how to do it the wrong way. So I begged for the spot and they gave it to me and uh, they gave me the school. I got into the school. It's a very, I can't speak too much about the school because it's a, you know, trade craft sensitive and, um, but it's intense. It's, it's, it's very comparable to special ops type training. They put you through the mill, they put you through the ringer, stressful situations. And the one, the one time they walked in and they insisted that I have a device, a recording device on me. And I think they were trying to set me up for failure to see how I'd react and let these two goons in on, on this one thing. They would find a recorder on me. And that was the whole premise to it. Uh, but I was I was two steps ahead of them or as two steps ahead of this one girl where I thought she was going. So I, I took this device. They ordered me to do it. And I wore it on me. And I did the scenario and everything went well. I, I came out OK on the other side of it. And uh, after the debrief, she knew I had this recorder and she she insisted you must he must have taken it off. They didn't find a recorder because I pulled my pants open. They started searching me, pushed me up against the wall. I pushed back these two big gorillas. And I was like, look, you guys want to search me. You're pulling at my pants. You want pulling at my belt. Let's just get it. Let's get it over with. And I opened my pants and I start dropping my pants. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? Hey, you want to want to get naked? Let's get naked. And like, nah, pull your pants up. So. They didn't find this recorder. So at the debrief, she was like, where's this recorder? You must have taken it off of you. Where is it? Like, I said, no, I didn't. You know, ma'am, I had, I didn't touch it. I didn't take it off of me. So you're telling me through this whole scenario, you had it on you at all times. Where is it right now? I want you to produce it right now. And I was like, oh, you know, if you like me to. And I had an audience <laughs> and my counselors off to the side watching, like a coach at a basketball game. And, you know, like the shot clock is running. And uh, she goes, I want you to produce it. I demand, I order you to produce it right now. I said, sure, if you don't mind me reaching into my pants and grabbing it out of a particular place on my body, I'll, I'll do that for you. And then I, you know, they were like, all right, all right, all right. You don't have to reach in, don't get it. So we left the room and my counsel was like, you know, that's, that was phenomenal. Thank you, man. That was the best, you know, he, he loved the, the little scenario that played out. And uh, I went to offer him, I said, hey, you want this device? And he said, no, no, I'm not touching that thing after it was in your pants. Go give it to the tech guys. <laughs> Operation Charlie Horse is what the book is is mainly about. But there is also, did you work with taking down a couple dozen Gambino family members in Operation Family Ties as well before Charlie Horse? I did. Years before when I was doing some casework as an investigator, I worked uh, Operation Family Ties. That was a great case out of New Jersey State Police and some state organizations, along with the FBI, did some Gambino guys. Um, and that came to bite me later on in the Charlie, Operation Charlie Horse. Mm. It was a great case. We put some guys in jail, some eight guys. And along the way, Kyle Ragusa was one of those guys that got uh, swept up in the state case. And then years later, he resurfaced in Operation Charlie Horse in one of the meetings that I was in. 
Operation Charlie Horse was the FBI investigation of the D. Calvacante family, which some people may not know is the longest running standing Italian American family, which also includes the five families of the Bonanos, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchese. Capo Charlie Stango, who lived in Henderson, Nevada, he moved from New Jersey. What did Charlie mean when he said to you on your first phone call, you're going to fly my flag? Um, we had built a relationship with each other by then. And uh, when he realized that he was going to take me onto his team, he wanted to make it very clear that flying your flag means you're part of You represent, I represent the DiCavacante family. He couldn't be more clear about that. And he said, well, no matter where you go from this point on, you represent me, but more importantly, you represent this family and you're going to fly the flag. So now what that means is, and he broke it down step by step. When you go to a meeting and you meet a guy, you meet this guy, Tommy, before you even have a conversation with Tommy, you stick our flag in the dirt, you tell Tommy who you are and who you're with. So that gives you status. It gave me status immediately. The fact that I can say I'm with Charlie Stango and I'm with the DiCavacantes, I might not be, be a made guy, but I'm with them. That gives me a level of protection in, in that world, in, a, in La Cosa Nostra. And um, so that was it. And once he started telling me that and he allowed me to fly the flag, I can conduct my business that I was doing myself. But then it was also he was putting me into places. From that point on, it was like on steroids. He would call me up every day. Go see this guy. Go see this guy. Go down. Go over here. Go see this guy. And it was constant, constant, constant. Because, again, money drives the train, right? So. Mm-hmm. Any meeting he puts me in on top of me doing my regular things that I'm already doing with guys in the street on top of my regular meetings, I have to now go where Charlie, I have to drop everything I'm doing and go to a meeting on Charlie's behalf. You had like a father son relationship with Charlie. How did you handle feelings of affection towards Charlie and his girlfriend, Patty, but also do your job? That was a tough one, Tommy. Um, you know, this was one of the hardest cases where it was the longest undercover I did. Um, but you know, we're trained to maintain composure. We're trained to, to be effective analysis. And, you know, we analyze everything, but along the way, when we're trying to do that, you, you can't help but being a human inside of you comes out when people start to say they feel for you and they care for you. You got to understand when I met his, his girlfriend or his wife, she did not like me. She didn't want anything to do with me. She, she didn't trust me at that point. You know, they had information that cops were trying to take a shot at them. Law enforcement was looking at them, maybe possibly trying to infiltrate them. So she she had wanted nothing to do with me. Charlie had a dream about me one night. He wanted nothing to do with me at some point. So they made their way back around to trusting me and brought me into their little circle. And then in, a, I would say, a nine-month period, you're talking these relationships just built into a family relation, a love. They would begin to tell you and trust you and have you in their home and you know, offer to sleep at their house. Don't sleep at a hotel. You're out on the strip. Why do you want to stay on the strip? Come stay here. We got all these extra bedrooms, you know? So that's the level when you start to realize that people genuinely feel for you, you know, feel, you know, and then they were looking out for you, but they would always do things along the way. They would always make a point to tell me something that reminded me of, you know, of how, you know, how chaotic he can be or, you know, he is, a, he is a sociopath. Charlie is a sociopath to some level. I mean, when you can commit murder, and, uh, and not worry about it and want to do it all over again, time after time. That's a guy you got to, you got to keep, you got to stay in your lane with him. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one full step and you're out of good graces. Being an FBI undercover task force officer, how important is it for you to trust your gut when you may be feeling something different? 
your gut's everything, right? Your gut's, mm -hmm. I always want my gut from day one. As a kid, I was taught to trust my gut. You know, my father taught me that. Uh, if it doesn't feel right, you figure out a way to walk away. Sometimes you can't walk away, but, um, you know, that's when you start using the skills that you're given and you're taught. Effective communication comes in. Uh, you have to be perceptive. You need to see five steps ahead of where this guy's going. I'm trained to watch your body language. I'm trying trained to watch your eyes, the way you talk. And if you're being deceptive, it's the art of deception is what undercover work is, right? It is an art of deception. And if you're being deceptive with me, I have to be able to read your eyes. So a psychologist teaches these skills and you kind of learn along the way. I used to do a lot of research on my own about that. You know, it's, uh, I was taught a lot as a homicide detective, how to do interrogations, the art of interrogation. And it's similar, you know, the way somebody's eyes move, the way their body changes, somebody's hands when you're talking to them. And that kind of gauges where if I can turn it up, if I need to be the guy in control, or if I need to, you know, I need to step this up a little bit and look a little more street and a little more gangster, or do I need to step it down and play more of a victim role? Where I got about, you know, if I'm dealing with a made guy who, who's got his button already, or he's a captain or higher, then I need to bow down to this guy. I need to kiss his feet. And that's playing a part of a victim. So you need to know when to do that. What is the fear then of being undercover with organized crime? The, uh, the biggest fear is being looked at as a rat. Because if you looked at as a rat, you'll be, you'll be killed like a rat in a minute. You'll just be exterminated in a split second. If you, if you tick the wrong guy off or say the wrong thing, you step out of bounds and speak out of line, that'll get you clipped in that world. So you really, it's walking, walking on eggshells. Mm -hmm. Even when I was given the juice that I had, I mean, eventually I ran my own crew. And even then guys look up to you and uh, there's, there's the, the jealousy, you know, you're looked at by a guy like Charlie and his own son was under me. So how does that make, you know, that at that point in the case, his son is reporting to me. Why am I not reporting to Charlie's son? You know? So how does that leave his son looking at me? Everything you do, people are looking at you. Every act you're doing. One night I had one of my guys want to do an armed robbery and in the criminal world, it made sense to go and rob this place. Masks are there. The guns are in the trunk. Let's go do this. But I can't say, yeah, sure. That's a good idea. That's a great idea. Let's go make some money. You know, I have to talk them down from that. Uh, so it's moments like that. You're, you're constantly on. The adrenaline is just like a drug. And you just, the level of adrenaline that's rushing through your body. When you come home every day, it's like you ran a 5K every day. You know, that's how you came home. You're exhausted every single day. And it was like you never had a chance to relax because as soon as that day is over, you need to debrief. You need to do reports. You need to report back to your case agents. You need to prep for the next day. So, you know, you still got to do your FBI thing on top of being a bad guy. With all the adrenaline and fear that you're talking about, what was going through you the, the night when you're on Staten Island Bridge with your son sleeping in the back seat and you get a call from one of the guys that you're trying to bring down by the name of Jimmy, who thinks he sees you on the bridge. Yeah, that's Jimmy. Jimmy Smalls was uh, Charlie's nephew. And that's, he was the beginning of the case. I dealt with him for a couple of years <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he kind of stayed in his lane. He was a capable guy. What we call in that world. If you're a capable guy, you're known as a shooter. You, you'd be willing to take somebody's life if you're a capable guy. And he was more than a capable guy to get a reputation in the street. He had a, a violent, violent criminal history. Um, and he wasn't afraid to do the deed. So I had to be careful when I walked around him or I did things around him. And one day he just called me out of the blue and he says, you know, cuz, are you, are you on the, Goth, uh, the Gothas Bridge right now? What are you talking about? 
And, you know, I'm driving on Agatha's Bridge. He goes, are you on Agatha's Bridge right now? Like right now, are you want to go on a black pickup truck? And he's actually naming the kind of car I was sitting in. And uh, I wasn't in my Cadillac. That was the thing that was that was bothering him. And I was like, what are you talking about? And yeah, I knew what he, you know. I said, no, I'm not on Agatha's Bridge. He goes, because I'm telling you, there's a guy on Agatha's Bridge driving a black pickup truck. Looks just like you. And here I am driving a black pickup truck on Agatha's Bridge. And uh, I don't know what kind of car he's in. Because obviously he doesn't have a car. And I didn't know what kind of car he was for. So here I'm trying to solicit this information. Like, what are you talking about? I'm down South Jersey. I'm by Atlantic City. What are you talking about? And he was like, no, no, I got to catch up to this guy. I'm telling you, cuz, wait do you see this guy? He looks just like you. I'm going to take a picture of him and send it to you. And here I am now. What do I do? Do I start changing lanes? Because that obviously makes me look guilty. No, you just maintain. You know, in that situation, I'm trained for that. So I start breathing. I start, you know, I can't freak out. I can't start whipping my head around looking for him because the minute he sees that, he's going to miss me. And then he's going to see the little kid in the back seat. And no, you know, Giovanni Gatto don't have kids, <laughs> you know. So uh, unless that's Finster baby in the back seat that's helping me boost some stuff, that's not going to go well for me. So uh, I mitigated it. And I said, nah, no, get out of it. What are you with you? You're crazy, you know. And again, I had juice by then. So I was like, what are you doing bothering me, calling me up? I'm in the middle of stuff. I'll call you later. You're an idiot. And I hang up on him. And that's how that ended. Will you explain your relationship with Luigi and how many times you felt like you were being tested by him? Well, since day, since the minute I met him, the minute I met him, the minute I got out of, he, he heard about me and Jimmy doing some stuff in the street in the neighborhood. And, uh, Jimmy overstepped his bounds and we were selling some construction places and some factories in the neighborhood in Elizabeth. And, uh, Louie got wind of them. And I guess, and then, uh, eventually Luigi called for a meeting to meet me and he wanted to meet this guy, Giovanni, that everybody's, I guess, talking about the buzz because here, Jimmy Smalls is running around with Timberlands and North face jackets and all stuff that we were boosting. And, you know, he's making good money. And then all of a sudden this, this schlep is making solid money. And where's he getting this from? So Luigi wanted to meet me and obviously to put his hooks into me. So, uh, he called for a meeting and an introduction. I met him outside of a, a, a mall. And the minute I walked up to him, he was almost laughing at me, looking me up and down. You know, I'm buttoned down. I got nice jeans on and my shoes and, you know, the way I always dressed. And uh, he just one side down the other and just laughed and chuckled and then started peppering me with questions right out of the gate. Like, who are you? Where are you from? Where are you from in the old country? Where you get out of here? You know, who, who you would ask me these questions? And just the way I bit back, he didn't like it. Didn't sit well with him. So then a couple of months later, I've been dropping some stuff off to his his club, his social club in Elizabeth. And uh, he came right out and said, listen, you know, I got to tell you, there's some talk that the Bulls are trying to take a shot at us, meaning law enforcement. And he says, uh, and you know, you're, you're kind of new around here. And I don't know if he was just jabbing at me or what. And I, I kind of got a little heated and a little escalated, kind of threw a little fit in his social club. And then he backed down and I knew I had him in a, in a corner and I was like, no, what are you talking about? You know? And that, that was another one. And as things went by, he, he always watched out of the corner of his eye. He's a pretty smart guy. He, he should have trusted his gut mm-hmm. um, because, you know, he was always smart enough to, to question things. But then when we started making money together, he was okay with it. And then what happened was he kind of wanted to put a claim on me, but then Charlie was watching me from afar and he stuck his claim in me. And then, uh, you know, Luigi lost that claim 
And Luigi said to me, listen, you should come be in this crew with me. You should be in my crew. Like I run a little bit of a crew. I got a couple of guys and he wasn't made at the time. And I said, nah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good by myself. I like where I am. I'm a lone wolf. Leave me alone. I, I don't know too much about your life anyway. I never claimed to know a lot about the mafia. I made them explain it to me. I made them want me to want it. And uh, that was the effectiveness, you know, for them to say, you, you like us, but you're not like us. You want in? What, uh, what, why would I want in on this? Look at all you guys. You're running around talking about everybody's business. Look, I'm a lone wolf. I'll worry about myself. So I made them work for it. And then eventually, Luigi wanted me, but then Charlie wanted me, which caused a sit down in the administration. So, which means they both had to come in. Charlie had to fly in on a plane from Nevada and come in and have a sit down with them. And they each pled their case. And then Charlie eventually won that because he was a capo by then. Charlie was the capo and Louis was just a high level associate. So, of course, Charlie won. The fix was in. As you said, you end up having your own crew. What I thought was a great story is, and I'm, my listeners are probably going to get a kick out of this, is the Rico story. If you don't know what Rico is, it's the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act. And you can take a go Google it. Talk about the time that you were, I think, at dinner and they were talking about Rico and you were like, who is this guy? Tommy, that was one of the, one of the best tapes I've ever made in my entire career. Uh, you could not have planned it any better. And by then, I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. I controlled the whole thing. And by then, I was almost the conductor of an orchestra. Because by then, I had all the skills to be a good undercover. I had the nerve to do it. I was in control of everything. So it was like I was the one picking what people would say at that point. And by this point in my career, I can tell you where to sit without you even knowing that I told you to sit there. I mean, the, the mind games that went on. So uh, so one night, you know, I took them all out to dinner and we were talking about some or earning some money and kicking up to Charlie and how we were going to do things. And, uh, you know, it was later in the case. So it wasn't I was not a made guy, but I was doing the work of a, of a, of a soldier because I was reporting for Charlie. And uh, he used me as a buffer. So we're sitting there eating dinner and everybody's talking and I'm letting them have their conversations and they chat, chat, chatting away. And I'm recording everything with my devices. And uh, I start hearing about this Rico, Rico, Rico. And I know they're talking about the federal law, Rico. Mm -hmm. And I hear Rico, Rico, Rico. And I'm sitting there and I'm starting to get agitated and I'm starting to change my body language and I'm starting to get a little annoyed. And I'm, and finally I just you know, slam my hands down the table and I kind of, well, you know, not for nothing. What's with this effing guy, Rico? You know, like, who, who is this guy, Rico? And they all like, stop. I said, you know, I don't like what I'm hearing here. You know, everybody's talking about Rico this, Rico that. It's one guy you're talking about. Who's afraid of some Spanish guy named Rico? And why are you all toys? I got cowards in my crew here. What's going on? And they all just panicked. And they all looked at me with like, like deer in headlights. And finally, it was Charlie's son. And he says, uh, no, Kush, Kujin. No, 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 no. And he laughs at me. He goes, no, listen, cuz. Rico's not a guy. Rico's a thing. Rico's a charge. What are you talking about? He goes, no, it's a, it's like a federal charge, racketeering. He breaks it all down. So him and another guy in my crew that start now tag team and breaking down what Rico is. No, it's a federal charge. And the one guy, older guy, he goes, no, what? And this guy, Mickey, he goes, what they do is what we're doing. Like me with the drugs and the trucking and, and this guy with the swag and this guy with this, everything we're doing and making money for you. And then you're kicking up to Charlie. And it's going up the ladder. You know, that's that's a Rico. That's a charge. What? What is this? When did this come about? And they explained to me, ah, it's been around forever. And this is this is what I'm talking about. The government's going to pin all of us down. They can they can put all of us in jail just for sitting here talking about stuff. I said, wow, really? That's something. All right. 
All right, so you know what? You all got to be careful from now on. I said, we can't bother. You got to look out for that. And I look at Anthony. I go, we got to look out for daddy. This going to really put daddy in jail? And he says, yeah, daddy can go to jail for this. All the way out in Nevada. They put it, they'll go get him. I said, all right, no more of this. You guys got to be really careful in the street. From now on, I want to know everything you guys are doing. And that was it. So I made a beautiful tape. <laughs> I always wished it went to trial so I could play that tape. <laughs> the, the relationship with you and Charlie and Luigi, it just didn't get better. It got worse. And he finally ordered you to have him whacked. The murder was planned. The Rico was filed. Ten arrests were made along with Charlie. What were your feelings when he was arrested and sentenced? Um, they were mixed, you know, because, again, that human side of me came out. That side of it wasn't for what Charlie did, because I know Charlie wanted to he wanted me to murder Louis. And, you know, the family, the administration wanted. I was doing the hit on behalf of the administration. It was all sanctioned and approved through the crime family. So um, it wasn't just that Charlie lost his cool and decided to kill this guy. But it was the the effects of when the, the, the warrants came down and the doors were getting kicked in. These are doors that I went in. These are doors that I sat in houses and had dinner and enjoyed, you know, time with kids. And I, I knew the kids and I, I, I came to know these people's wives and, and their family members. Those are the people I thought of, not the guys in the crew. These guys are criminals. They're getting put away or they're getting locked up because they broke the law. This is the name of the game. You know, I didn't put these charges on you. You did this to yourself. I'm doing my, and it goes back to the cops and robbers, right? It's a game of cops and robbers. And I didn't choose to target them. This is the way the case went, but it was the the family members. You know, at the time, one of my guys, it was actually Charlie's uh, grandson uh, had been attacked by a pit bull and was laying in a hospital. And, you know, I really had feelings for him. I was looking out for him and I was, you know, making sure he had things that he needed in, in there and making sure his father was looking out for him, making sure his grandfather was looking out for him. So it's the people like that that I felt, ah, you know, these are the people I'm betraying. These are the people I'm going to let down. And it weighs heavy on your heart. And then, you know, the, the Patties and the Charlies and the, and the Anthonys, uh, Whitey, his son, telling me how much they care for me, how much they love me. You know, that's a, that's a kick in the stomach. It's mm -hmm. a kick in the teeth after it's all said and done. So that weighed heavy. But this is the mental side of it, right? This is what you have to deal with that is an undercover. You know, this is the trauma. It, it does. It's a certain amount of trauma that you go through on a daily basis. And when it all comes to an end, you're living this life. And now all of a sudden you're just unplugged. And, you know, that's it. You're unplugged. The lights go out. And that's case over. Now what? Now what? I'm supposed to move to a different case. I'm just supposed to forget about these people or forget about whatnot. You know, it's it's that's a hard thing to do. Anybody that says to you it doesn't bother them, I, I think they'd be lying. Or they themselves, if they're an undercover, shouldn't be an undercover because they might be a sociopath themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Shutting Giovanni Gatto, was there PTSD that came with that? And and what kind of mental state did you have to come out of? Yeah, there was some PTSD I collected along the way. I mean, I collected a lot of PTSD in my career, but this was uh, this this just was the cherry on top um, for all that stuff coming back. It was the the anger of the arrest coming down, the anger of not being operational anymore. Um, what do I do with myself now? You know, you got to remember, since I bought that bottle of liquor and I graduated high school, I didn't know where my life was going to go. This is all I knew. You know, what what am I supposed to do now? Become a librarian? What am I supposed to do? Go get a job at Home Depot. So these are the things when I realized my life was really, you know, affected by this case. And these were all things that the trauma I put my family through, the soccer games that I put my family through when I almost bumped into guys. Um, you know, the fact that I there's a there's a transference of trauma that occurs. When somebody suffers a certain amount of PTSD, 
well, there's transference of trauma that goes to your family. And I didn't learn that until afterwards. Now I'm, I'm, a, I'm an expert on it because I lived it and I, I know what, what it's like. But knowing that the trauma and now I have the guilt of putting that trauma on my wife and my kids and myself. Uh, so, yeah, it all takes its toll on you. But it's how you deal with it. Now I'm, I'm taught the lessons and, and the, the techniques and the tools to, to mitigate the trauma. Um, took me a while. Uh, the whole relocation process was not fun. Um, and that was it. I, I never went back to work. I never did another operation. I probably had 10 years of service left in me to do at least, you know, I'd do this job till, till the cows came home until the day I died. I love this job so much, but, uh, that was the end of it. So, um, yeah, so I had to pick the pieces up and now go to, go to work, rebuilding my family. Giovanni, you spent over three years on this case. How did you ever know if you were doing your job well enough? Um, well, because I knew by that point I was a seasoned cop. I was a seasoned investigator and a seasoned undercover. So I knew the case I was building. You know, um, I knew the tapes I was making, you know, thousands of tapes, hundreds of hours, whatever it is at the end. Um, I knew the stuff that I, I had collected on these guys, just the intelligence alone that I provided to the government uh, on the inner workings of the mafia was all tremendous to them. It was all uh, to let them know where they are today, to let them know they're still out there doing their thing. So, you know, I knew I was doing my job. Your life after the operation was assessed as the worst FBI risk assessment out there. Patty had moved close to you. Luigi was still in your area. How difficult was this now that the operation was over, but you're still in harm's way right by where you're living with your own family? Yeah, Jersey being what it is, um, unfortunately, that's the area we lived in. And when when Patty came back, when Charlie had been arrested and he transferred back out the East Coast, uh, she followed him back out here. And where she landed, it's just Murphy's Law. If it could happen, it happens. You know, the cop gets cuts himself shaving. He believes that death. the bad guy gets shot nine times and he lives. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of Murphy's law. And that's how that's how we live. So, uh, of course, she's going to move right by me. Of course, Luigi's going to be, you know, within so many miles of where I live unexpectedly. And of course, these guys are going to be right in my backyard where I shop. You know, um, that's just Murphy's law. So we thought I could mitigate it for a while, but then quickly realized there's no way I can. There's no way I could even leave my house by myself, let alone with my family and try to live a normal life. With all that happening, what made you tell this story now in print? I think it was the right time. Um, I never intended to write a book. It was always the psychologist. Every six months I had to go for a checkup from the neck up in order to operate as an undercover. And uh, those are the people, the psychologists say, listen, you know, this is your average undercover's file is, you know, two inches thick. And here's yours. It's like six inches. you got a whole career. I hope you're going to write a book when you retire. They would always say that to me. And I, and that used to really make me mad. And I go, what do you think? I'm narcissistic. You think I'm some kind of, you know, I want to go out here and tell these stories. Um, but yeah, it was important for me to share this because of what you spoke of before the mental trial. I see the job of any first responder is a stressful job. And then I realized the importance of sharing the story and how I mitigate trauma and the stress and, and how I handled it is important. Um, but it's also important for the public to know that I'm not the first to do this, nor am I the last. There's men and women out there in the military and in law enforcement doing this job every day. And they're risking their lives every single day. Every day they go out there, you know, it's a huge risk, not maybe possibly never coming home. And uh, it's important to tell their stories. They can't tell the story. So for me to tell the story was the right time. 
Uh, I met my co-author, Doug Schofield, along the way. And he was the one that said, look, if you ever decide to do it, and I blew him off initially. I was like, yeah, thanks, buddy. But, you know, I know you write five other books, but thank you anyway. I tell you what, I'll make you a promise. I'm a man of my word. If I ever decide to write a book, you'll be the first guy I call, you know, and I blew him off. And then I, I had met him again. And what happened was he and I built a relationship and we stayed in touch. And then he kept he kept saying, look, if you ever decide to do this. And I was like, I, don't know. I got all these notes. He goes, notes, what notes? I said, out a psychologist I was seeing after the job. came. He told me to write everything down. You know, it's therapeutic. He said, you got notebooks. Let me see them. And then basically I showed him this, you know, series, a stack of five subject notebooks. And he was like, the story's here. It's written. All you got to do is clean it up and put it out there. Share it. So that's why it was because of him. That's why. It's a fabulous book, listeners. I'm telling you, you got to get your hands on it. You were also as Giovanni Gatto, but being Giovanni Rocco as well with your family and your wife and your children. Did you, you talked about a soccer situation, which listeners read the book. You can get that story there. My question is, did you ever like walk into a restaurant to meet your family as Giovanni Rocco and see somebody in there that was in the life from Giovanni Gatto and just turn around and have to walk right back out? I was lucky that I didn't. Uh, unfortunately, like you said, in that soccer situation, they found me unexpectedly bumped into some people, but I never walked into a restaurant and saw guys sitting there, but I was, my head was always on a swivel. You know, I would walk in and I still do it to this day. I'm, I'm trained to assess any situation. I don't walk into any building. I don't walk into a restaurant without scanning. You know, it's, it's almost, um, it's almost obscene, the photographic memory I have, you know, and you're trained for this. Like I could tell you, you know, I walk in, I look in a room and I turn around, I could tell you what color shirt you were wearing, what color headphones you had on, what, you know, you're trained to remember these things. So if I walk into a room, the first thing I'm doing is scanning. If it doesn't look right, I'm turning around and walking out. I never had to have that situation though, where I left. My wife and I had planned for it though, because again, she was law enforcement. So was I, she was putting bad guys away for, you know, sex crimes and, and narcotics and, here I am doing my thing. And she worked undercover work for a short period of time. So we had a plan of action. We said, look, you know, here's the plan. If I ever walk away, don't, don't yell where you going. You know, so it's always, I'll, I'll catch up with you when I see you, you know, mm -hmm. would you do it again, knowing what you know now and what your family went through? It's painful to say this at times people look at me crazy, but I would do every bit of it all over again because it brought me to where I am today. You know, everything that happened in my life since birth, the family, the love of my family, um, the good times and bad I had, everything I had in my career, all the pain and agony and all the trauma that I had, it, it all, in this case included, it all brought me to where I am. It made me the father, the husband I am. Um, it made me more aware of, of how precious life is, how short life is. And because of that, it, it put me here with you today. So I wouldn't change one bit of it, not one bit. Did you ever get into teaching undercover? I did. Yeah. Early on when I was still an undercover for the bureau, I went back to school and I became, you know, when Joe Pistone and those guys had taught me how to do it. And I was, I was honored to come back as one of the, the guys behind it, and, you know, looked at as a, as one of the, the heavy hitters in the, you know, major league guy on the team. And uh, yeah, for a short time I was doing it even after retirement, I had gone, and I started speaking um, nationally and internationally at law enforcement conferences and intelligence agencies and then, and then for military. So, you know, I was, I was, that kind of gave me a, an avenue. Did you ever look across and see somebody and go, that's a young Giovanni Rocco right there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I uh, actually, I'm mentoring some of them right now. Yeah. Yeah, I see them in, uh, yeah. 
I get phone calls every day. So yeah. <laughs> go to you guys don't even know. I've already been there. I already know what you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they go into meetings and then they call me and they're like, how did you know this guy was going to say that? Oh, uh, you know, I might've been there. <laughs> Giovanni, man, thanks for your time and being on before the lights. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tommy. I really appreciate you having me. All the best. If you would go to the show notes, you can get a copy to go a link to get to the book links to aroma retail if you want to be a sponsor on the show, contact me before the lights pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at before the lights podcast until next time, everybody, this is Tommy Canale. A salute. A chin chin. <laughs>